I am super glad that you're here, and um, I think we're going to find this is going to be deeply relevant. There may be some of you in this uh, room uh, today who maybe you're at the beginning stages of faith development, and the whole idea of a cosmic conflict behind the, the scenes of the physical is a stretch. And maybe that's difficult for you for a number of different reasons. You know, I mean, first of all, you've got pictures of uh, televangelists on television, and they're exercising demons out of people, right? And the whole thing sound looks a little showy and and uh, all that jazz. And then uh, maybe you've also thinking about scenes from horror movies, right? So where there you've got impotent priests and they're uh, shouting incantations over uh, children uh, uh, with green skin and you know eyes rolling back in their head and they're talking like this. And that's kind of you know, and it's really hard to take any of that seriously. That's all Hollywood. And uh, then you also might have uh, images in mind of medieval art, right? So you've seen like uh, these uh, medieval paintings of uh, devils in hell, and there's like the red tights, and there's the horns, and as they gnaw on the dam, and that sort of thing. And, and it's hard to take that whole thing seriously. And then finally, you've got Gary Larson cartoons, right? Oh, man, the coffee's cold. They thought of everything. Right? So hard, hard to take spiritual warfare and the whole idea of, of devils seriously in this kind of, um, of world. It seems cartoonish in our scientific age. This month, I want you to reconsider it, and if that's where you're going, and, and just reconsider for three different reasons in ascending scale of importance. Number one, I mean, consider this for just a second. We're really kind of unique in our, in our Western approach to uh, spirituality, in our skepticism of it. Uh, if all of the world had been boiled down, there's about 100 billion people who have ever lived on planet, about 100 billion. Well, if you turn them into 100 people, how many of those 100 people have disbelieved entirely in God's spirits, the afterlife, and devils? How many have disbelieved? Like less than one. Less than one of them. So uh, more than 99.5% of everyone who's ever lived has had some... Uh, deep, innate sense that the world is, in some sense, haunted. Now, that's not absolute proof, but what it is is just look around, everybody, and unless we're prepared to be okay with the charge of, of ethnocentrism and, uh, and a deep sense of uh, cultural pride in our particular position, if everybody else sees things differently than the way we see it, then maybe there's something wrong with the way we see. It's just something to think about. But there's a second reason to consider this whole idea of cosmic conflict, and that is um, uh, just the fact that despite the fact that we live in a modern age, that there's no end of reports of uh, spiritual evil. Regularly, non-crazy people in our modern world experience spiritual evil. It happens all the time. I get reports in my office, you know something, you have a friend, you know friends that know friends. And they report an evil presence, a haunting, a dark image, an apparition, a psychological oppression that is not able to be chased by drugs or therapy, uh, a hostile, fearful, or violent reaction to a mention of God or a Bible reading or of Jesus being named, as I experienced uh, one time myself, obsessive, blasphemous thoughts, irrational outbursts of rage. And of course, these are explained away and often dismissed, sometimes even by the participant. But the phenomena of spiritual evil shows no sign of going away, not even in our enlightened age, AC3. So just something to consider. But probably the greatest reason to consider the idea of cosmic conflict is the reason why I consider it to be a reality, and that is because Jesus thought it was so. 
And I have other reasons for believing that Jesus uh, was who he said he was. And I take him as an authority on these matters, on, on matters of eternity as well, even though uh, none of us have ever been on the other side to report on that. I take Jesus' words on these things in spiritual warfare to be words of truth. And so you look at Jesus and you realize that his entire ministry was based on an idea that the world was locked in cosmic conflict. And from the beginning to the end. So, for example, look at the beginning. In, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, right at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus says, At last, the time has come, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Turn from your sins and believe this good news. Here's a key word. Learn it as you investigate Christianity. The word is kingdom. Kingdom is a big Christian word. And very simply what it means is the sphere or rule of a king. It's where a king rules. Really simple, right? Kingdom. But what's fascinating is, is you start realizing Jesus said, hey, the kingdom of God is in me, then it begins to press a question on you, right? And the question is very simple. If the kingdom of God, that is the, where, the place where God rules, has come uniquely and newly in Jesus, then whose kingdom was earth before him? Whose kingdom was it? Before Jesus shows up, sing the coming of the kingdom of God. Well, the answer, it may shock you to find out, is, is that Jesus believed it was Satan's kingdom. It's Satan's world. And, and maybe that kind of startles you a little bit. Maybe you say to yourself, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If there's a God, and I'm ready to accept that there's a God because of the great design in the universe, uh, it's obviously, in any, if he's in any sense a creator, this is his world. I mean, if, it, if there's a God, this is God's world. Well, of course it's God's world. He made it. But Jesus believed that it had fallen into the wrong hands that it was God's world, but it had fallen into the wrong hands. So um, you need, Jesus saw the world this way, saw it under the dominion of spiritual forces of evil. And therefore, his mission, as he brought the kingdom of God, was to displace the existing kingdom with a new kingdom. He was announcing a change in ownership. I'm announcing a change in ownership, and I am displacing the rule of illegitimate spiritual agents with my own rule, rule of the Son of God. And he would use this analogy. Matthew chapter 12, verse 27. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, he said, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. So that's his word about kingdom again. But then he says, here's his analogy. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. So there's a metaphor. And Jesus is saying, here's how I look at the world. The world is like a house, and it's under the control of a strong man. And if you see me going around exercising demons, then you understand what's happening here. I am a strong man who has an illegitimate hold on the planet, and I am exercising him from the world. So understand this, friends. Jesus saw his mission as being spiritually militaristic, to free the house. But what do you have to do before you can free the house? You first have to bind up the existing owner of the house. First, you have to tie him up. He says, in me, that's what's happening. And finally, on the cross in the New Testament, is so clear about this. What is happening there as Jesus hangs on a rough Roman cross is something cosmic in the spiritual realm. The strong man is somehow, in some cosmic and spiritual way, being tied up and bound in that way, in that moment. And so because of that, um, he is saying, look, I'm not just exercising a demon from a person. 
I'm exercising the devil from the world. That's my job. That's Jesus' mission. If you understand it correctly and biblically, Jesus says, I am exercising the devil from the world. It's fascinating when you look at it that way. And in case you think that's maybe a little... Uh, look, there's an atheist turned Anglican, so I don't think Anglicans mostly are terribly fringy. His name is C.S. Lewis. And his assessment of Christianity was just this idea of cosmic conflict. He said, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. Christianity agrees that this universe is at war, but it does not think this is a war between independent powers. It thinks it is a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in that part of the universe occupied by the rebel, illegitimate rulership. Understand? So he goes on and says, enemy-occupied territory. That is what the world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise. Why does he say that? Well, because Jesus comes in straw poverty, right? and not announcing himself in light and glory and power. Uh, coming in disguise and is calling us, this new king, this rightful king, is calling in his great campaign of sabotage. And now you kind of have a pitch fight, right? So this is a new view that Jesus invites you to have about the world. So when you hear an invitation to become a Christian that is not just about personal salvation, and you and God get right, that happens, absolutely, you, that happens. But you join a movement. You join a sabotage. You join an insurrection. Do you understand? You are joining an insurrection that is a rule of evil. And it begins in Jesus. And it's decisively dealt with on the cross. And it finishes on the that Jesus comes back again. And that explains some things. Because when I describe this idea of cosmic conflict, you go, you know what? The world looks like a battle zone. And part of you wants to go there. You go, it looks like a battle zone. It literally looks like a war zone. But if you're telling me that Jesus decisively tied up the strong man, why does it still, 2,000 years later, look like a battle zone? That might be a question on your mind. Well, there's a sense of progression in this thing that the New Testament describes, that Jesus comes to tie up the strong man, and he finishes the job at the end of time. And if you need a picture, uh, our history provides a perfect example of it. The Allies landed on Normandy on D-Day. And everyone can tell you, and you know yourself, that, that it was finished on D-Day. After D-Day, it was over. The Ger Fortress Re Europa had been breached. The German stranglehold on the continent was over. It was done. The Nazis were finished in one day, in 24 hours. And, and if you want to get a picture of this, this is like the Nazis, like the strong man who held Europe. They didn't belong there. They held France. What were the Germans doing in France? They didn't belong there. They're illegitimate rulers. But their power over the territory they had captured and claimed was crushed on D-Day because one stronger than the strong man. And he came ready to sacrifice. And with the cost of much blood, he broke the power of the strong. And it was a decisive day, an amazing day, a bloody day, D-Day. But now you understand the cross. Now you understand what was happening there. But after D-Day, was the war over? It was not over. It went on for another year and a half, the great transition between D-Day and V-Day, when the Allied forces finally rolled into Berlin. And if you can understand that, you can understand the 
incredible impact of the cross in this spiritual conflict. You can understand the age of the church, and you can understand what awaits Christian thinking about the end of the world when Jesus comes to make all things new. So now you kind of get it. Now you get Jesus' picture, but you also get the idea that if we're living then between D-Day and V-Day, that the Nazis are still active, and they're still killing people, and there's still, they're still casualties, and we're living there. That's where we live. And if you can understand that, friends, then you can understand why you would still be resisted, even though maybe many people in this room turn their lives over to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you've joined the insurrection, and yet you're still resisted. You're resisted in many powerful ways, by temptation and by trial and by being spoken untruths, by lies. And by the way, that matches the three different words that the Bible gives us for how our spiritual foe resists us. So the first word, and we'll see all three words in our passage today, is tempter, which means that he appeals to our senses to lure us into evil, temptation. But he's also called, so he's called the tempter in the Bible. He's also called Satan which means literally adversary. And maybe, I don't know what you thought Satan meant in your lexicon, but it has a literal meaning. It means adversary. The one who resists our good, who brings trial. He has a third name also in our passage today, and that is the devil, which literally means the accuser. So he falsely calls into question who you are, who God is, who God says you are, and what God has said. In other words, he brings untruth into our lives. If you needed three more words, you could say he draws, he destroys, he deceives. That is how you and I are still resisted, even though Jesus to uh, decisively displace his illegitimate rulership in the world and in your life. So today we're going to be looking at how spiritual warfare uh, works against us as temptation. So, you know, you can uh, kick out the idea of spinning heads and, you know, uh, impotent priests and, you know, people throwing up and the whole thing. Temptation, something much more mundane than that is going on right now. And it's temptation. And we see this when we look at Jesus. And here, speaking of which, Jesus and temptation is an interesting thing to put in the same sentence, isn't it? Because you think, well, Jesus, Christians believe he's a son of God. He's God incarnate, God with skin on, that whole thing. Well, look at what the Bible says about Jesus in Hebrews 4.15. We have a chief priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted in every way that we are. And yet without sin, Jesus undergoes temptation. He's locked in the spiritual struggle. Now, you might think that temptation shouldn't be a problem for him, right? 100% God. But you miss the idea that he has a full human nature fused with a full divine nature. And he experiences all the temptations that you do. He gets it. He understands the, the pressure of temptation. He understands the soul-crushing kind of pressure that some under. Well, that's what he doesn't relate to, because Jesus never buckled under it. But there was a time when he was under so much powerful temptation that the Bible says, let drops of blood, like the stress and the pressure of it. He gets it, friends. That's it. He knows. But it's so important for him to get it. It's so important to relate to you in this, to be your high priest, to be the one to represent you. That God saw fit to put him into temptation intentionally. In fact, before he did anything in ministry, he experienced powerful temptation and how he deals with it ought to instruct you when you come to your own personal dinner with the devil so let's let's read about jesus temptation shall we first the context this is matthew chapter four you can look it up i'll bring these verses also on the side screens Matthew four verse one then jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights 
he was hungry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's probably hungry. You know, love the matter-of-fact way that, you know, the Bible writers will throw it. Hey, and, he, and he was hungry. Yeah, so imagine that. Well, let me pull up a couple things out of this that might surprise you. One, he was led into temptation by whom? The Spirit. The Spirit of God. Now, some of you are having a brain meltdown because you memorized the Lord's Prayer as a child, and you remember the last line, lead us not into temptation. So how does that work, right? Uh, listen, how can we not be, uh, how can we pray not to be led into temptation when the Spirit of God specifically leads you into the, in order to be tempted? Well, the fact is, friends, God does allow you to be tempted. He will allow you to be tested. He will allow you to be in a situation. In fact, if you really want to look at it, um, there's never a situation when you're not exposed to some measure of temptation. But let's look at the second half of the line in the prayer. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's a proper noun, by the way. And most translations now will translate it the evil one. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What is that telling you? First, that Jesus understands that you were in a pitched conflict. He knows you're in spiritual warfare. And so daily, regularly, you should be praying about it. Deliver us from the evil one. Because we are involved in a life and death struggle with him. Deliver us from the evil one. But the second thing is that this prayer is, is not a prayer that God would never put us in a way of temptation. We understand that just by the, the, the life and example of Jesus himself who was, who was led into the desert to experience temptation. In fact, every moment, as I said, is, is a moment for temptation. You're experiencing a moment of temptation right now. You know, you got the temptation and you know, check the phone, right? That's probably on a lot of you right now. Some of you want to maybe check the score of the game. You got some money riding on that thing this morning. Uh, some of you are tempted to fall asleep as Rick drones on and on and on this morning, right? You're in a moment of temptation. Lead us not into temptation doesn't mean that you, you expect that God will never allow you to be exposed to temptation. That is not what it means. We have to understand the preposition there. God tempts no man. And Matthew chapter 4 is clear about who's doing the tempting, right? The Spirit will lead Jesus into the desert to be tempted, but who does the tempting? By the devil. Led by the Spirit, tempted by the devil. And now you can understand how to pray that prayer. Lord, lead us not into succumbing to temptation. Lead us in temptation. While we're in it, because we're in it, but do not lead us into succumbing to it. Let it not be. Rather, Lord, deliver us from the evil one. And now you know how to pray. And now, friends, you know who your enemy is. Because some of you have been all brain fried about that thing since you were a kid. Lead us not into temptation. What the? So we're sort of supposed to pray that, that God would uh, not lead us into temptation, which he himself causes, and so that we won't fail, but that's something that God seems to want us to do to fail. You're all just all discombobulated about the Lord's prayer. And now you, you, don't under, you didn't understand who your enemy was. Now you understand who your enemy was. Lead us not into succumbing to temptation, but lead us in temptation. Because we're going to be there. And we need your leadership. And we need your deliverance. Rather, deliver us from evil. From the evil one. So now you know who the real enemy is. Let's look at how that enemy operates in Jesus' temptation, shall we? Next verse. A temptation about pleasure. Verse 3, then the tempter announced, uh, approached him and said, 
if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. What has he just finished 40 days of? What? Fasting, thank you. But he, but he answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So first, notice the preface to the temptation. What does the tempter say? How does he begin? He begins, if you are the son of God, what is the significance of that? Well, you have to read it in context. You back up one verse from the temptation passage. You look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. We have just come out of the climactic moment of Jesus' baptism where in which the Spirit of God has descended on him, and we hear a voice from heaven, the voice of the Father, who says, Behold, this is my Son. I'm delighted in him. Now, some of you read that before, and you thought that that was theater for the crowd, so that the crowd would know who Jesus was and have great reverence. But how many of you have ever thought the voice was for Jesus? Was so that Jesus would know. See, we, we, again, we all together have the divinity of Jesus in front of the humanity of Jesus. And we think like from age three, he knew exactly who he was and what he could do and, and uh, you know, was, you know, zapping his bad friends and killing them and, you know, raising them back to life again and, you know, maybe making birds out of clay pigeons, you know. You know, what, what, would, a, what would a child who was in fully aware of his do? We just imagine Superman as a two-year-old, you know. But the Bible is very clear about this. Jesus grew. He grew. He grew in wisdom and knowledge and favor with God and man. He grew into these things. And he probably grew into his divine understanding. And so this climactic moment is the moment he knows for sure. This is who I am. I am the son of God. Father delights in me. I have a mission on this earth. So the first thing, now you know that. Now, the first thing the tempter does is what? Question his identity. Question his identity. This is what the tempter does. He calls you into the dark desert and then calls you to forget what you heard in the light. Are, are you God's son? Are you God's son? Well, if you are, if you are, then do this. He'll come back to it in the next temptation, as we'll see. But friends, you ought to understand he'll do it to you. He will attack your identity are you really loved by God? Are you? Could, I mean, could God love someone like you? Because, I mean, we all know what you've done. Have you heard that voice before? I mean, could God really love you? Does he really have a purpose and plan for your life? I think he's thrown you to the wolves, friend. Look what's happening around you. I mean, I don't think he cares about you. I really don't. If you are loved by God, maybe you should pray, but maybe you're not loved by God. Can God really change you? I mean, you're kind of the same person you've always been. If you could change, which you probably can. The tempter did it to Jesus, friends. He's going to do it to you. He's going to question your true identity. The identity that has been given to you, if you've surrendered your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ here this morning, is nothing short of epic. The descriptors, you're a daughter. You're a son of the Most High. You're forgiven. You're adopted. You're a temple of God. You are a co with Christ. You're an heir of heaven. You're a priest. You're a ruler. So first thing out of the gate, he will call your identity into question. He will call God's heart into question. And isn't that finally what, what the serpent did to Eve? Let's go back all the way to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. What's the first line of the tempter to Eve? What is he, did God really say? It's a question. It's just, a, it's just an innocent question. Did God really say that you couldn't eat of any tree? He deliberately misrepresents God's law. 
Did God really say you couldn't eat of any tree in the garden? Uh, you die? No, you won't. You won't die. Your eyes will be open. You're going to have knowledge you never had before. Are you kidding me? Your eyes are going to be open. God's holding out on you. I mean, he's, he's, he's got the good stuff back here, and he's keeping it from you. Just saying. You could be like God. But God doesn't want you to be like him because he's, he's a killjoy. He doesn't want to have the good stuff. So mark this problem, or this pattern, friends. Mark the pattern. The tempter call, calls God's word into question. He calls your identity into question. He calls God's character, his love, and his law into question. And then he puts in front of you something good. Something good. He calls God into question. He calls God's rule, God's favor, God's word into question, and then he puts in front of you something good. Being like God is good. Having your eyes opened is good. Right? These things are good. And look at Jesus. Here's some bread. Bread is good. Bread is good. How many of you have ever been tempted to do evil in this room? Right? All right, I submit that you're all wrong. I suggest that you have never been tempted to do evil. You've only ever been tempted to do good. I want you to think about that for just a second. You say, whoa, Rick, uh, you know, you're the Bible expert, but uh, I'm pretty sure when I'm tempted, it's to do bad stuff. Um, look, is that your first impulse? What's your first impulse? What is the tempter holding in front of Jesus? Wickedness? Killing babies for fun? No, he's holding before him bread. And bread is good. Just food. And food is especially good if you've been abusing your body with fasting for 40 days. Then it's really good. Then food is awesome, good stuff. He's tempting him towards something good. So what's the problem? Why is it bad? Friends, temptation happens when you are drawn to something good around God. Circumventing God. And now it's wicked. It's not the thing that you're drawn to that is intrinsically evil. It's the going around God. It's a circumventing of God's character and boundaries and love and goodness and plan. You go around that, now you've got wickedness. Now you've got badness. But friend, the thing that he'll draw you to is good. You're made in the image of God. He can't draw you to killing babies for fun. Because you were made in the image of God. He can draw you to something good, though but around God. And you can be like God, making up the rules. Look at the next two temptations and you'll see it. The privilege temptation. And the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, there's that again. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Again, friends, this is good. If you are special, Jesus, then you are entitled to Father helping you. If you are God's son, tradition demands that he rescue you. God rescuing you, showing that you are the chosen Messiah by such a grand miracle, a spectacle at the temple in front of, in front of Israel, proving that you are the long-awaited Messiah. This is good. Nothing bad about this at all, except it's around God. It circumvents God, except for that. Except for the fact 
that it goes around God's plan and impugns God's character and says, you could be like God, just make up your own way to that good thing. Look at the next temptation. Verse 8, again, he took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And, and he said to him, I will give these all to you. Who do they belong to? We're just proving the earlier point, right? That the world is under the control of the evil one. They, they belong to him. I will give them to you if you fall down and worship me. Verse 10, then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. AC3, this is a power temptation. And again, power is good. Privilege is good. Pleasure is good. And, and by the way, don't read into this and think that this is about Jesus being uh, tempted by money or something like that. Uh, the, the Son of God is not tempted by a glitzy party in a fancy house with booze and golden chandeliers. That's not what this temptation is. No, it's about something good. And what would that be? Well, Jesus knows his mission is to save the world, for the world to be returned, as I said, to her true master, true owner, to the legitimate, good shepherd of the world, the creator. That's his mission. He could get that right now. He could have it right here, a shortcut to that same good, but no cross and no death and no via dolorosa, no way of He could have that power right now to release the world from her bondage, the evil one. What's wrong with this? What's wrong with this? It's good around God. It's circumvented. It tries around God, around his goodness, circumventing his character and boundaries. So for the sake of pleasure and for the sake of privilege, AC, for the sake of which are good and from God, what do we do? We do the same. We, we give in where Jesus did not give. We give in and we reject God to make our own path to those things, our own path to pleasure, which is good, and our own path to privilege, which is good, and our own path to power, which is good. But then what if, we, what, what if we give in to that? What happens? Well, on the other side, and some of you can personally attest to this, on the other side, those good things materialize. Oh, yes, they do. But for a short time. And then, and they are gone. And in their place, you will get pain instead of pleasure and dishonor instead of privilege and bondage instead of power. Some of you will wake up Finally, you will wake up to the spiritual battle that wages all around you when you see that the devil has not come in some kind of wickedness for its own sake. He has come to bring you something good around God. That's all. Just a little shortcut. Just a little shortcut. We'll go around. Go around God's character. We'll go around his stated boundaries. We'll go around his, his good plan for your life because he's kind of slow on the uptake, God is, and he's not coming through fast enough, so we'll just go around. And you could be like God. And friends, when you get that, then you understand when why the Christian writers of 2,000 years have always said that the worst sin is pride. It's, it's worse than what? Worshiping the devil. I mean, it's worse than whatever sin you put in there. It's always the worst. And why? Because it's the original sin. It's the original sin. It's the one that says, I will be like God. I'll make my own way to something good. So what we have to do then is do what Jesus did. Well, how does he respond? He quotes the Bible. We'll talk a lot more about that in the week three. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. This is how we resist the tempter. 
Jesus says it like this. We are made to have the good pleasure of bread, my enemy. Yes, we were made for that good pleasure, but I will not respect the source of true pleasure by ignoring him. I need the gift giver before I need the gift. And so if I have to give up the gift, so be it. I will take the source of goodness and only take pleasure from his hand. That's what he's saying. I will, I will live not just by bread, not just by bread. I will live by every word that comes from the bread giver. giver. So this dynamic, friends, is insidious. And what we need to do is do what Jesus did, is humbly cast ourselves on God. And you can see how relevant this is, right? I mean, think about the scandals that plague society, like huge banks caught in scams. It wasn't just 2008, just last month, right? Wells Fargo, again, just plundered in scandal. What did they want? What did those bankers want? They wanted something good. They wanted money. And money isn't evil. Money's not bad. They wanted to do good things that you can do with money, enrich the lives of thousands of people and employees and investors, and also, yeah, benefactors who do charity stuff with money. That's what we do. But what did they have to do to get that pleasure? They had to go around God. For God said, of any tree in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you must. Here's a boundary built in my character and my goodness. And so these are boundaries which correspond to the way I am. I'm truthful. I'm, I have integrity. There's faithfulness and servant. And there's ultimately love in me. So here's my boundaries. They express my good character. You can't go around this fence I'm putting up and not die. You'll die. But those bankers heard the tempter. Did God, did God really put up that fence? I mean, come on. Morals are relative. Is it a hard fence? Truth-telling, integrity? Is that a hard fence? God wants us to have the good fruit, right? So let's get the good fruit and find our own way around God. We can be our own. We just have to cross this line over here, just one or two. It's no big deal because we'll, go to the, we'll get the good thing. This, you know, ends justify the means. And so we can make money appear out of nowhere. And for a second, it appears to work. And then death. Death of relationships, death of jobs, death of wealth for millions. And finally, spiritual death for the proud who trusted in their money to save them, and they will have a rude awakening on judgment. Instead of living by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, this is really smug for us to talk about the rich, isn't it? But we can also pursue, we regular Joes can also pursue some good around God. We pursue the good of marriage. Marriage is good. We can pursue it around God. And now, thing that's supposed to reflect God's love and faithfulness and oneness and diversity and all that beautiful stuff, it's marred by spiritual mismatches which are pursued with haste about having a, finding a mate from God. We pursue the good of peace around God. That marriage is supposed to last is all full of warfare. And we say, we want to get to peace because, you know, I'm tired of all the fighting and so we're going to pursue it, but we're going to just pursue peace around God. God who loves peace, we're going to pursue it around God. And so pretty soon we're tagging the furniture and we're calling the lawyers. And, and the marriage, which was supposed to last, is now ended. But we got peace, and peace is good, but we got it around God. And we pursue the good of sex around God, around faithfulness and monogamy and covenant, around heterosexuality and around servanthood. And you hear the voices in the culture, right? Say, these are not laws. No, these are not laws. These are just ways God is holding out on us. He's holding out. He's got the good stuff back here, and he's holding out on us. Yeah, so we can get the good fruit and the pleasure it brings without God, without his fences without his restrictive rules and so what has happened we bite on the apple hard 
And so sex flows freely in our streets, and now that great good pleasure is marred by broken hearts and broken homes and broken families and broken children who cry for their mommy in the middle of the night. But did God really say that sex has a design for it? He didn't really say that, did he? Did he really say that? He did, friends. And because he wants you hope and a future. The enemy of your soul who will give you short-term pleasure and long-term pain. And he's happy to devour you in the process. Friend, maybe today you need to see who your real enemy is. Because you thought it was the person who would give you the shortest-term happiness. But that enemy is happy to devour you with long-term pain. It's God who will, yes, ask you to walk through the desert of short-term pain, but then he will give you long-term happiness if you follow in the way of the master. Now, let me show you. We realize that all of our temptation, we're just replaying the great story. And now we realize that, that this is the human story that we were made for good, but we've fallen, we've gone bad, and now we are being constantly pulled away from you and your goodness. And so I pray, Lord, that we would stand the way the Lord Jesus stood, that we would stand in his power, and we would realize that bread is good, but bread is from God. And we will take God over bread any day of the week. So, Lord, we want you. Not just the gifts that you bring, we want you. And Lord, may the gospel train us all to say that if I have God, well, my heart longs for nothing else, for he satisfies my soul. I pray this in Jesus' name.